Hello and welcome to episode five of Politics and Pints here on Jackman Radio. We're so happy you decided to join us. Today we're really excited. We're sitting down with presidential candidate, former congressman and vice admiral of the Navy, Joe Sestak. Joe, how you doing? It's great to be aboard. Yeah, thanks for coming and sitting down <laughs> with us. This is great. Well, thanks. It's wonderful to have both of you. Thanks. Yeah, so you're running for president. Yep. Um, you got into the race um, in June, you were saying, a little late. Uh, how's it going so far? Well, I might be late, but my ideas are pretty timely. So it's going, it's going well. Don't get me wrong, it's got a challenge. The established media said, whoa, they're late. Wait a minute, I'm in at the same time Bill Clinton got in years ago. So we kind of work on that. Ninth in the polls, tied in Iowa. We stayed there for about three weeks. No, I'm sorry, it was three months in an Econo Lodge. <laughs> right. We actually tried to fill those, most of those holes of those 18,000 precinct captains you got to have for the caucuses where they trade votes as you go around. But now I'm in New Hampshire, independent-minded. You can walk in, be an independent Republican, say, I'm going to vote Democrat, and walk out. This one's made for me because I represent a nearly two-to-one Republican district. Second Democrat since the Civil War. F from the NRA, 100% neighbor poll choice, and yet I got reelected by 20 points. I didn't spend a penny on a campaign ad. So I think this is really where I'm going to try to make sure you know, my foot walks along the road, as I'm doing 805 miles across yeah. New Hampshire today. Right, so that, that's kind of a uh, out of the Sestak playbook from Pennsylvania. Yeah. I know when you ran for office out there, um, you walked across the state, and you're doing it here. How's the walk going? Tell us about your walk across New Hampshire. It, it, it go, it's going well, and I, and I, first of all, I do it because I never forgot, as we learned in my daughter, the book, To Kill a Mockingbird, where Atticus had said to Scout, the young girl in the book, who relayed the story later on, you can't know a man who stand in his shoes and walk around in them. In a sense, that's why in the, you'll see pictures of me with assault weapons on my website, where I went out, even as an admiral with my troops, to make sure as we boarded ships, I still experienced what they went through looking for contraband. Is it going, well, it is. Look, I started a mental health facility in Brattleboro, which is on the other side of the Navy Seabees Bridge there. Then I crossed on over. But first, I wanted to be there because they deal with vets and first responders, among others that have PTSD and other challenges with the traumatic work at times they do. Then I continued, and I met here in New Hampshire, the guy who has the largest caterpillar lab in America. My gosh, you walk in, and here's somebody who started four years old, and he's totally taken this into explaining to the world, Harvard University and others, the vitality that we have because of making sure that our climate change won't destroy an ecological system and even such a base part of the food chain. And just one more, if you don't mind, because we're stilling, went to a prison. I do that all the time as a congressman, go visit my vets. You have one of the most pragmatic, progressive Cheshire County prisons here of anywhere. You talk to the inmates, and don't get me wrong, they gotta be dealt with toughly they are, but they're dressed as Mr. and Ms. on both mm -hmm. sides and a focus upon re-entering them into society. Has it been great? Yeah, I've learned, but I've also been able to meet great people like that. And I think it stands pretty well for America. As challenging as times are, there's still great people out there doing good things. Doing a walk like that definitely brings attention to larger issues. And it's kind of, were you inspired at all by Granny D's walk across the country? Um, for campaign finance reform that she did when she was nearly 90 years old. So much so that I just did a video on her, Granny D. Oh. Yeah. You know? Here's to Granny D. Yeah, Granny D. <laughs> Granny D. So. And, yeah. and while we're clinking the glass here, I need to say that Admiral Joe Sestak is the first presidential candidate on this show to drink a beer with us. Well, thank so. you. 
This is number five, and this is historic stuff here, guys. I he just went from that. ninth in the polls in New Hampshire to first. Yeah, just yeah. on that alone. <laughs> he's, he's working hard for the Irish vote, and he's winning it drink by drink. Better have a good take offline just for a moment. I'm here in a small business where a young uh, woman established this place against all the odds. Mm -hmm. And I'm, my hat's out to her because we're only creating 18 new small businesses for every 10,000 working Americans today because it's a lot more tough to handle the regulatory cost and to get the startup money than when we used to have 36 small businesses spring up for every 10,000. Yeah. We gotta do much better than that. Yeah, I mean, creating a business now, there's, there's red tape, there's, there's you know, regulation, there's taxes, there's so much BS you have to worry about. It's turning a lot of us off to wanting to do anything like that. You, and, and our dad was a small business owner. He was a car salesman. You know, he owned wood shops. He was a car salesman. He was a contractor. You could kind of do all that stuff more uh, you know, back in the day. And, and for our generation now, there's not a lot of incentive. No. And why is this happening? And, and you want to talk about Granny D? Her quote says, we have to get the money, which is the greed that we have in America, out of the halls of government. And to yep. show you with small businesses, I became vice chairman of the Small Business Committee down in Washington, D.C. as a freshman. It normally takes you 10 to 12 years to be a vice chairman. I thought they wanted to show they had a sense of humor. <laughs> no. Nobody goes to small business because there's no PAC money. Yeah, that's true. And yet there is 50, over half of Americans work and live. What are we doing down there? Right. Yeah, Main Street versus that's, Wall Street. That's, that's really the, the heartbeat of America. And, and well, what, do you, what do you think about the, the idea that $15 an hour would hurt small businesses? No, if, we, here, if, we, if we, you know, compelled them to, here, to pay their staff that. Uh, I'll tell you what the exact right amount is today, $14. How do I know that? We analyzed it. As I told somebody who was walking with me today, I'm a great Napoleonic fan, where he once said, don't tell my wife, make sure she doesn't see this. If I were to be in love, I'd analyze it bit by bit because you can't ask how or why enough. So what we did when I lost, I didn't go for a lobbying job like 450 congressmen and senators. I went to yeah. teach and work on nonprofits. And as we was teaching, we analyzed what's the right minimum wage. So we studied all those coterminous counties. Like in New Jersey, they raised in the minimum wage. And we looked at the counties over here that didn't in Pennsylvania. And we found out that they did not, as well as scores and scores of others, lose any jobs as long as you didn't raise it above the average hourly wage. So you could go up to $14 today, which is the average hourly wage, half the hour, and you don't lose a job. Above that, you begin to lose it. So that's why right. I just said, let's analyze it, look at it, and show by facts who does facts today and show <laughs> that you go to jokes. 14 and then you and then you can stick up as inflation rises as in, as well increase to $15. Yeah, you have to. I mean, a lot of people are struggling and, and the argument is oh, well those jobs are for high school kids and they're for younger people. Well, there's a lot of single parents and people who are even people who have college degrees who are making in that ballpark. So it's so it's like when you look at really works you know, in fast trying foods. to survive, they have second jobs. I mean, it's, you know, it's crazy. You, you hit it right on the head. When you really analyze who's taking these fast food jobs and all, they're single moms. It's not and just like kids. that. There's yeah, not kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to get out. Here's the other issue. I tell people that you take uh, New Hampshire. Our employment rate here in New Hampshire should be 7.6%. If you included the 5.1% of those who have left the workforce because they don't have the skills with technology changing so rapidly right. in order to get a job. And that's why we need a program that I call training for a lifetime to where in the military, when you lose your job because the F-15 goes out of business, we don't kick you out like when the coal mine closes as we work ourselves towards handling climate change. Nah, 
We send you to the Air Force Community College, the largest community mm -hmm. college in the nation, to learn about the F-22. And so that's what we have to do. Those are the Trump and the Clinton supporters as we try to unite this country that we need to focus on those 65% of American workers that we spend less than any developed nation on labor force training. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up money in politics because I've been reading a lot about Jimmy Carter lately. Um, our dear Jimmy just turned 95. And um, I'm sure you've met him numerous times, or you've met him before. Mm, I wish but, I had. Um, fellow Navy, right, right, yeah. Navy submariner, Navy guy, yeah. and um, you know, just just a, a class act and kind of a rare thing in American politics to reach the absolute pinnacle of it, becoming president and, and not really being as dirty and corrupt as other people we've seen reach that office. So Jimmy Carter said uh, about money in politics: the U.S. is an oligarchy with unlimited political bribery. And Citizens United violates the essence of what made America a great country in its political system. And this speaks to what you decided to do after you were out of Congress. Limitless flows of campaign cash favor those already in office. The same thing applies to governors and senators and Congress members. So now we've just seen a complete subversion of our political system as a payoff to major contributors who want and expect sometimes favors for themselves after they get out of office. So you didn't go that route, you went a different no, route. No. But you mentioned so many of your former colleagues or colleagues, they're in there and they're wheeling and dealing and, and they have their future in mind. What kind of plum job am I gonna get after And this, this is so, why the biggest deficit we have in America today is not the debt, it's the trust deficit. We God. have 450 congressmen and senators taking a lobbying job in the last right. 20 years. The median level of income has flatlined for working families during that time, but their revenue has gone up 400%. Right. Look, I got offered those jobs. Of course you did. One was yeah. a seven-figure job. I was an admiral in the Navy when I said, <laughs> why so much? <laughs> an admiral and a, uh, uh, it really was Navy, an admiral and a congressman. Yeah. And I told my wife, she said, jokingly, I think, are you sure? Yeah. Are you yeah. sure about that, Joe? <laughs> Let me tell you, it's it's... That's the horror. That's why I submitted the first piece of legislation after Citizens United was yeah. submitted to say this must end. And that's what Carter was referencing, Citizens United. It's completely legalized bribery and it's subverted democracy and the will of the people so, because what, what is someone who has $10 in their bank account going to do against someone who's got $10 million, you know, you who can it. lobby members of Congress? So, And that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. So when you were, you were in Congress for two terms, just your day-to-day, how much time did you have to dedicate to fundraising and, and dealing with donors and, and, and people that want something out of you? I mean, that's pr probably a good part of your job, I'm assuming. It, it is a good part, but I ensured I didn't, you know, I went to the hearings. Usually what I did is wait until the evenings and took it out of personal time. Mm -hmm. uh, two things. As I used to tell people, I followed the sun over to Hawaii. And I made sure when the last scene was done, I went over then and then made the calls when I was in Washington, D.C., not when I was in the district. Because in the district, we kept our office open seven days a week to 9 o'clock every night because I entered it after having come home from the war and my daughter's brain cancer being taken care of. I entered a third war, the Great Recession, which, to your point, those politicians who took those lobbying jobs were the ones also who voted over time and across the spectrum to tear down a wall where we definitely need a wall to keep greed out and accountability in. When they tore that inaptly named Wall Street wall down, mm -hmm. they destroyed my constituency livelihoods. We had to keep it open those times to save over 800 homes from foreclosures yeah. because politicians were influenced in the final study by the commission on what caused the Great Recession. They said it was the lack of political willpower to face up to the financial power of the lobbyists of yeah. the financial industry. So after being a congressman and you were in that 
just behemoth system of corruption and, and bribery all around you, what could we do? Like, what could actually happen aside from repealing Citizens United? Um, what steps? Which with this Constitution, with the Supreme Court, is going to be tough. Here's what needs yeah. to be done: we need a president who actually people feel they can trust once more, mm -hmm. even when they disagree well with him, because they know he will ultimately be always accountable to people above party, above self, above any special interest. That ends the revolving door. Mm -hmm. Said that will not stand. But also. They know, because he has demonstrated it by turning down those things. It's not for one's word, it's for one's actual proven deed yeah. that he'll be like Harry Truman and Jimmy Carter as Harry Truman drove in a skunk car away yeah. from the White House. Right. <laughs> Look, we have no choice. Because unless we unite this America again, there's no way we're going to meet the defining challenges of our time. We want another president who's going to do executive orders, and the next one throws them out, and yeah. money is the root. Mm -hmm. I mean... If I might, we have a challenge here in New Hampshire. You rate three or fifth, depending upon which study you see, look at, in, the, in how much opioid challenges per capita you have people involved. Oh, and yet huge. we're 48th down here on being able to have facilities to support this. But yeah. yet, you step back, was it only pharma? No, you hit it on the head. The number two official in 2010 in the Justice Department walked down the hallway to the Drug Enforcement Agency and told them to stop all prosecutions and referrals for prosecutions, excuse me, all investigations, all referrals for prosecutions of the illegal pill mills, like in West Virginia, 500 people in a town, they're shipping yeah. them farmer mm -hmm. a million pills, and then that gentleman went off to become a revolving door lobbyist. Right, revolving 165,000 people have died since that day yeah. happened. They're, they're treating them like drug dealers now, finally, like a, like a drug dealer down on the corner is being There should be like, criminal like approaches yeah. about this. Purdue yeah. Pharma, Pharma and the, uh, the what, Sackler family? Sackler family. Sackler family, they're now looking at, you know, people who are at that level actually prosecuting, prosecuting. them and holding them accountable for lying about the effects of, of the drugs, how dangerous they actually were, how addictive. Yeah. So but what happens to the politicians that open the door? Yeah, nothing's happened. Oh, nothing. It's just a revolving door. Yeah, Nor for those politicians, and, and, Democrat and Republican alike, who voted well, for that tragic both, war in Iraq. Yeah, it's both Two parties. decades of unaccountable consequences. Even yeah. the invasion by Turkey into Syria is a result of that yeah, vote. And that unaccountable leadership is responsible for the lack of trust today. So could you lump Joe Biden into that? He voted for he that voted war, for and not one politician, including Mr. Biden, has ever accounted for themselves for the two decades of unaccountable consequences. Yeah, and, and, and um, I'm friends with Dennis Kucinich, and he said, I was not fooled by George Bush about Iraq. You know, you have Hillary Clinton and, and the 08 batch who ran, Edwards, Clinton, Biden all said, we were fooled by George Bush. And Dennis Kucinich, you know, say what you will about him. He said, hello, I voted against the war. I was a sitting member of Congress. I led the, the resistance against the Iraq war. I wasn't fooled by him. See, this is gets to the second reason why I'm running. The first one has to do, if we don't have somebody to unite this nation, we're not going to move forward. We're only sideways. Number two, we have to have somebody who's commander-in-chief who actually understands that militaries can stop problems. They can never fix a problem. And if you're going to have somebody who's going to ever use our military, they better understand how it will end before you yeah. decide to begin. Those, they didn't understand. Joe Biden or others, what's a Shia yeah. and a Sunni? Yeah. They unleashed yeah. ISIS. Right. And then... I'm not accountable. And so, therefore, Americans have a loss of trust or faith in our engagement in the world when we need to be engaged it's in the never, world more than yeah, ever. Never for ending, climate change alone. Yeah, never ending in perpetual warfare. I mean, Cheney said we're going to be greeted as liberators. Yeah. You actually butted heads with Donald Rumsfeld about troop drawdown in Iraq, right? Is that, was that one of the issues that... The issue uh, that I kind I mean, of butted heads others. with the establishment, <laughs> you might say, <laughs> establishment. is defense reform. 
in 2005, would I honestly do believe, oh, by the way, I did believe that we should have, you know, have a date certain. When I got to Congress, and submitted a bill, said within a an year, exit date. Yeah, yes, yeah, we, yeah. Ha we must be out of our right. Why a year did I pick? Because I studied and had the Army come over and studied uh, uh, Somalia. Do you remember Black Hawk Down? Sure, yeah. that was the early 90s. That's right? correct. Yeah. Well, remember, we had about 15,000 troops there. It took them six months to get out safely. So I had them come because retreating, coming back, is a lot harder to do because they know which way you're coming out right. than it is going in and they don't know which way you're coming. So it took about a year to get us out safely, but also defense reform. You know, we have a military today where the commander of the Pacific has said, we now no longer command the Western Pacific. The first loss of command of the seas by the U.S. Navy since World War II. Why? Because back in 2005, when I ran the Navy's $350 billion warfare five-year program, I said, stop building so many ships. It's not about structure. It's not about 54 submarines. It's about, about 35. And take that money, part of it, not all of it, you even need, and put it into cyberspace, cyber warfare. Yep. Remember how we took down the centrifuges of Iran? for two years just by a cyberspace thing. Yeah. And we're building a ship when I'd rather be able to take down its radar just by fairly inexpensive smart youth going jam. And so we are building, <laughs> a, instead of a force ground. capability, we're building force structure. We're building like the battleships, we're, we're not going to aircraft carriers. Now we need to go from aircraft carriers to cyberspace warfare. You're right. Without putting boots on the ground. Without you, putting boots on the ground. Do you see what's been going on uh, with Iran as, a, as similar to like the Gulf of Tonkin um, that really escalated yeah. the Vietnam War in 1964. All this posturing, putting our drones and our, maybe our ships closer and closer Basically to, goading to, them. to their sovereign territory it, this, and, and just being like, we want war. You know, this is, you're the first one who's ever drawn that analogy. And yes, as I think about it right as now. As a Navy guy, yes. I mean, you know way more about why. it than... Let me tell you, his was so important about what you say. I told you militaries don't fix problems, we stop them. We fixed Iran. Within 60 days, it would have had two nuclear devices, and we kicked it out by convening the world, which is our greatest strength, including strange bedfellows like China and Russia, yeah. and said, hey, yeah. economic sanctions, diplomatic sanctions, can't get rid of that stuff. They did. And then we broke our word. And now we think we're going to use our military to stop. And here's the issue. We can't survive if it's a sustained strike in the Persian Gulf. They have 19 mini submarines. We can't find them. The sonar doesn't work in reverberation in the Persian Gulf. There's only two places that those weak, I, when I was, had my aircraft carrier battle, we can operate. Two places. We go back and forth, 300 days out, you know. Just patrolling just and, go, and checking Launching aircraft. We go into the wind this way, we come back. We go into the wind this way because it's got the depth of water. So we'll get the heck out of Dodge, go outside the Gulf, and begin our strikes if we have to from a distance. And they'll lay thousands of mines by fishing vessels and close off 22% of the world's oil supply. In the meantime, they have hundreds of missiles. This is not Iraq. Oh, this no, is no, a no. This will make Iraq look like Disneyland. Yeah. You, this will make it look like a cakewalk in Iraq. Yeah. And so they'll rain hundreds of missiles down that can reach Israel and our bases in Qatar, Bahrain, and others. Maybe after three weeks to two months, we might be able to destroy the, the facility that's under 300 feet of rock, and then they can rebuild in four years. What are we doing? Yeah, we so fixed the problem. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a diplomatic solution here. It's not going to be military. And I mean, the Iranian guard there, I mean, that's a formidable, they're like, they're good, Iran's like a fortress. It is. You know, it's a country of how many people? Over 80 million? 80 million. 80 million and it's four times the size yeah. of Iraq. Yeah, and they're pretty modernized, and, and uh, it would just, and, it would be ridiculous. And I'll tell you, though, we, do, we should be engaging positively with them. When I was there in the Arabian, uh, Persian Gulf, yeah. their 
Navy, their professional Navy, not the Iranian Guard, when they come near you, they're one of the most professional round, coming down your starboard side at 3,000 yards. Roger that. It's the Iranian Guard that's the, uh, the nuts a little loose there. They'll come steaming towards you. I had to keep a helicopter up. That was my plane guard to kind of with the air from the blades to wash them away and ready to take them down. So there is a stable, thoughtful type of society in there, and we found that out when we engaged on them. Are they doing some mischief? Down right they are. Yeah. But you know what? We, can, we should slap down on that part by engaging them where we need there's some assistance It doesn't here. mean all-out warfare. Yeah, that, that's, no. that's crazy. Look, that, they that's don't insane. Like, they, don't like, they don't like ISIS and al-Qaeda. If we're really going to resolve Afghanistan, you can't just do it with the Afghan government. You can't just do it with um, the uh, Taliban. The Taliban are fueled by Pakistan. The government is fueled by India, and Pakistan and India don't like each other. They like the fighting. India, China's coming through its Belt and Road Initiative. Iran doesn't like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but it wants that road. You gotta get them all together, and so they all own the suitcase of peace afterwards. Yeah. But what are you gonna do? You're gonna leave, right. you're gonna walk away like the president did with the Kurds. Eh, you're mess. Yeah. It's a complex issue. I mean, it's... it's and it's, who understands uh, it, it? But that's my challenge, is to convince, tell people that, look, what happens over there is going to harm us at home. You better have somebody who understands this world. So, not just a short-term service, but understands long-term, it. Long-term, So, yeah. I mean, you know, regardless of how this primary goes, if you're not the nominee or you're on the ticket, I mean, I, I really feel like your voice belongs in this conversation and your experience. And... Um, so from 94 well, I appreciate it, but I want to make sure this beer stays in the conversation. So from 94 to 97, you were director for defense policy on the National Security Council staff yes. for Clinton. What was that like? What, was, was, what were your days like with that? With, uh, with uh, Bill Clinton, did you say, hey, Joe, yeah. how are we looking out there on the high seas? Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how are things looking out there, Admiral? I, how are we doing? Well, actually, how's Big Willie's Navy? <laughs> it, I'll tell you something. It was probably, I would walk out every night. And it were late nights, yeah. 11 p.m., and I would just walk out, and my office overlooked the driveway to the west wing. Yeah. I'd walk across that little driveway, and I went in, kept the Oval Office open. I'd look in and just look at the Oval Office and said, what an honor. Yeah. I never cool. lost the honor of serving the presidency of the United States over Bill Clinton. But I can't ever forget at times where Air Force One called. And there was an aircraft carrier where had its... Uh, it's aircraft starting to track this Chinese submarine that was, you talk about Tonkin and un Gulf of Tonkin, yeah. And it was tracking close to uh, the water of China that, out to 12 miles, it belongs to a country. And all of a sudden, China went on alert and said, launch aircraft to take down the others. And of course, we're interpreting all this, you know, NSA and all. And the call came in, and, uh, you know, from the National Security Advisor, who was with President Clinton, the Air Force One says, we just got called, what's going on here? And you know, here, all of a sudden, it's, it's just Joe Sestak talking to National Security <laughs> Advisor to the president saying, sir, here's what's happening. We always track submarines we find in there. They gotta be told, stop it and yeah. pull it back. Because the bureaucracy just went into automatic. We got a submarine and they forgot to think, oh my gosh, I'm getting close to inland waterways. And China says, that's an aircraft carrier with its planes coming in after it's going to sink my submarines. Your point about Tonkin and not understanding these intricacies of the world it, is something. And you were the guy. You were the guy that it had was, to, overseeing I, over 10,000 troops I, in a big fleet yeah. with the George Washington. That's all. Or that was 02 when you did the George Washington. Yep. Took command of so that. So did, did you get to hang out down in the Peoc? You go down there? Or where, Way where? down below? How do you know about that? Oh, I know about the Peoc. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> way down there. Oh, yeah. Presidential Emergency Operations Center. Oh, my gosh. Well, you guys have never been really, there. We'd like to go have a yeah, beer down could, there. Could you get us down there? How do you, how do you really? Well, you don't know. 
know about it. But I'll tell you something. You brought up Jimmy Carter. I'll tell yeah. you another time. I saw the war plans come on over as Jimmy Carter was. We didn't. We weren't thinking, but he was in North Korea. They had yeah. pulled plutonium out of the water to keep it where, which President Clinton said, it's a red line if you do this. When America knew a president meant his word. And they started pulling it out. And they came over and said, okay, on Tuesday we're pulling these carriers, we're pulling these Marines, we're pulling this, because was, he had told it's an act of war if you do that. And I'm sitting there in that small situation room. Wow, you know, this is serious stuff. You better know yeah. what we're doing. Right, a red line's and then been Jimmy drawn. Carter called up. Yeah. yeah. And said, uh, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> yeah. Said, hey, I got it. They're going to put it on back in. He happened to be by serendipity. We talk about a red line. I advocated as a one star admiral in, out there in those battle groups that we should have a red line to Iran. Yeah. For that exact reason. Absolutely. Well, I, and, the red and, phone. I'm yeah, sorry. The, the, yeah, the phone. Yeah, the not phone. just talk Moscow. We need one to Iran. We need one to Pyongyang. Yeah, we, we had it. We had it with Moscow. Yeah, Why not right, with Iran? Right. We got to talk to so that little people. Iranian boat that's all of a sudden calls this thing to escalate. You can say, hey, they put yeah, them back. Right. Right. And Jimmy Carter, um, why he's still respected in sub segments of the um, DPRK, the government. He negotiated with the uh, Kim Il Sung, the grandfather. So he offered Trump. You know, he. he I'll try to do Jimmy Carter. Uh, President Trump, I go if I negotiate with the North Koreans. I know them. Send me over there. I don't care that I'm a 95-year-old peanut farmer, you know? <laughs> I think you should go to North Korea. Jimmy Carter, we, that would be great. Would be perfect. I think it would be great. We've got a yeah. lot to learn from Jimmy Carter. We do. We do. He would look, part of this is, he kind of learned in the Navy, piss-poor planning means piss-poor execution. <laughs> yeah. That man just didn't go in with an idea like this president had. Said, oh, I'm just going to sit down and go. He would go in with a thought, what could be done, and in a very non-threatening way, just kind of laid it out. Right. And that's what he did, and that's why he's still successful to serve this country, still serving this country as people yeah. after he left office. Yeah, his post-presidency is, is awesome. would argue, the most, one of the most popular, and um, he still has a lot of goodwill. So if you were president or you're in the next administration, would you advise continuing talking to DPRK and, and meeting face-to-face? -face? I mean, what would your posture be yeah, with, first with off, Chairman when, Kim? When the, the president, when, when the president said he was going to start meeting with him at first, I was in favor of it. Yeah. I do think engagement matters. Mm -hmm. I think we should be doing it with Iran. Yeah. And we, after that accord, we should have continued to see where else we could bring it about. That's what we did with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. You know, we had 25 nuclear arms control agreements, people tend to forget, to keep that genie in the bottle after it. So, For a long time, yeah. 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 And so my think is that, yes, I would, but i do it differently. Again, like America's greatest strength is not by going it's alone, it's by bringing together the allies and friends of the world, and even those who are strange bedfellows. Russia, China, and bringing in Japan, bringing in North South Korea, and bringing them together, but also laying out to him that, look, I know that this president that just left office has given you credibility by meeting with you, getting nothing for it, telling us he was going to get something for it, but now you continue to nuclear making capability, you do ballistic missiles, and you've gotten cred on the international stage where more people are likely not to enforce sanctions if we want to put that back in the box. So that holds no more. Mm. And the proof of that is not that I'm saying it. I've got all these nations here yeah. saying it. There's no more cred here. We want something. If you're gonna, we're gonna relieve economic sanctions. And I don't mind going down to a peace treaty, yeah. but it's gonna have to be a quid pro quo because there's no other ways to do it. 
trust but verify. Yeah. And that's what the president didn't do. He had no plan. He thought it was a deal of some sort. This is a great reality TV moment, Joe. Believe me, it is. <laughs> it's incredible stuff. <laughs> so you, you wouldn't bring a bag of McDonald's and Dennis Rodman with you? I mean, come on, those are I marketing like chips. Hey, if it means peace. I mean, yeah. if it brings us peace. Look, you know? I told I told Chairman Kim I can get a basketball signed by LeBron James. He'll even personalize it if you get rid of your nukes. What do you think? <laughs> I think you're great. <laughs> <laughs> well, bring me to North Korea. I'll come with you. I can, he'll dress as Trump. Yeah, yeah. he'll, he'll, he'll do play basketball. Cheaper. I can shoot hoops, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's got the I'm a hockey player, but I, I can shoot hoops. Um, yeah, I, I feel that way too about North Korea. We should continue to talk to them. Um, we should continue talking to Putin in Russia. I mean, what, what do you think Putin's after? Why, why is he so obsessed with, is perceived as the internal affairs of, of our country and, and our elections? I mean, what, what is, what's Putin's end game? I mean, how would you... I think there's three points here. One is what he sees is, which is true, that when the Soviet Union ended, the United States expanded eastward. We took all those Eastern, Eastern European countries yeah. that were in the Warsaw Pact and now part of NATO. Yep. And we had agreements with the republics, Azerbaijan, and you know what I mean, and said, hey, we're now working with you here. And he saw this encroachment around. What we didn't do is work well with Yeltsin beforehand, which was a difficult problem because he had his own issues. You want to talk about right? beer? Well, he likes yeah. Vodka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Mr. Clinton was moving down that road, and somehow yeah. this guy came in and said, I'm going to stop that. But here's what happened. We now don't recognize and approach Putin the right. What he's trying to do is reassert the grand visions of the Soviet Union had except under Russia. But he only has power to do mischief in two areas. The near abroad, they call it, Ukraine, commandeering its warships, commandeering its lands. He doesn't have the might to walk into Western Europe. Now, we shouldn't look at it anymore. What he really is is a gas station. That's where all the money comes from. Siberian gas station. <laughs> this, you hit it on the head. They want to go deeper and yeah. drill more. They're running out of gas elsewhere. Right. We should be denying them technology to develop the, West, the Eastern Siberian wheels and say, Putin, look, let's get back on the road of good behavior here. Yeah. And that's where we're going to slap it down. Here it is what is. We have walked away from leadership of the rules-based world order where there were consequences for misbehavior. And a result of not doing it, you see the crown prince of Saudi Arabia high-fiving oh, Putin, oh, who then feels empowered to murder an American yep. resident in his embassy yep. because he fears no consequences from nope. it. And there wasn't any. And there wasn't, wasn't nor was there really any for when they commandeered those warships from Ukraine, Putin. Yep. And that's what we have lost by coming back yeah. because people felt that that tragic misadventure in Iraq is how we engage. No, we engage with other allies in a peaceful way, yeah. a very firm, hurtful American way to diplomacy and economic. You yeah. I think we've got time for one or two more. Uh, I wanted to ask you, do you have any cool stories about running against Arlen Specter? Ah. He was a bit of a Specter, you know? Yeah, he was. <laughs> actually, actually. You know, he went from uh, Republican to Democrat to Republican back to Democrat. And, you know, I, and then it, he was a comedian in his last throws. Did you know that? He did stand-up comedy after I, he was in Congress? I didn't know he did it afterwards, but they have a comedy club down there, and they'd yeah. ask us all to come in, and I know he went yeah. into it. The, the biggest that. joke he ever told was the magic bullet theory. Yeah. yeah. Was, uh, <laughs> that was his Be best honest joke. about that. You know, uh, the, the biggest, uh, probably the story, it's probably not that funny, but, you know, I got there, and we were having a debate before the uh, League of Women Voters. And I'm sitting there, and there's someone sitting in the front row, like two, I mean, it was a closed room. It wasn't large. It wasn't a big official today. It was kind of a, of the moment. And it was uh, of the moment in a week preparation. There's this woman sitting in front of me, and she looked almost homeless. And so the debate began. 
and he made his very fine statement. But I always wondered why I saw his son and others kind of looking at this woman there in front of me. And remember, I headed the Navy's Strategic Anti-Terrorism Unit, so intelligence was always important to me that I'm always observing He's things. always reading the room. Yeah. yeah. So Looking for exits. <laughs> so I was, and so all of a sudden, I go to make my opening comments, and this woman, phone rings, and she talks louder than me, so nothing I said in my opening comments could be heard. I thought, that's pretty clever. You She's know? a plant? It was a plant. It's not funny. It was just humorous that, Jeez. boy, those Republicans are pretty good in this race. You know what I mean? I, I should have outsmarted me, you know? It's not funny, but I thought, well, I, I should have thought through this one. Now, so. totally switching gears, the mid-90s when Steven Seagal was still relevant and like the biggest action star, what are your thoughts on Under Siege, the movie Under Siege? I don't think I saw it. Steven Seagal plays a Navy cook on a big aircraft carrier. Well, I didn't and see it. And he was Special Forces, then he became a Navy cook. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this, back. if he was a cook. Gary Busey dresses as a woman in the movie. This yeah. is before Kill Bill. So, yes, I'm I, 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 Joe, we better do a reboot, and I want Joe Sestak in the reboot of Under Siege. Joe Sestak. I feel Under Siege right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, when, you get some, when you get some downtime. And he was a cook? Yeah. It's, well, I'm it's just, just a cook. I'm just a cook. He's yeah. actually like. That he was undercover. Yeah, he's really like Special Forces. Like, they're like Casey Rybeck's on it. The whole aircraft carrier will be safe. Yeah. But they actually had an aircraft carrier that. They had permission to film they on. They had permissions to film on for, for them. You, you haven't seen Under Siege? No. Oh, but my you know, God. You, you want to be president? You haven't seen Under well, Siege? That's probably why. I was underway. Yeah, okay. So that's right. probably why. But here, if he was a cook and he didn't cook that well, yeah. I kind well, of understand. Yeah. He probably he was, was a pretty good cover. Yeah, no, it was great right? cover. But it was, it's, so, it's a classic. I, so you want me to talk? I thought you were going to ask me about Hunt for Red October or something. Or right? Das Boot? Yeah, or Das, das Boot. Boot? Yeah. yeah. Or K9, the Widowmaker? I don't remember that one. Das but that was a Russian. That was Russian. Okay. Yeah, that was a Russian. Those are the Russians. All right, so we're running out of time here. Um, Admiral, I just want you to make your pitch. Why should you be the next president of the United States? Because this nation most wants, and I think it most needs, someone who people actually trust again, even when they disagree, just they did for John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan, to where they would say, gosh, that guy's always going to be accountable to me, and has demonstrated it. Whether it was above party, that I care for people or whether it's above myself, turning down the special issues, or whether it's above any special interest, myself, party, and all. But you know what? This country also needs somebody to convene this world. Think of the issues we just spoke about. Mm -hmm. Who understands the world anymore? Who understands the military that thinks we fix everything? You know? No. We need someone to convene our nations that we support around the world together again with an illiberal, authoritarian, might makes right, China rising, climate change, 85% of the damage comes from abroad, and yet Saudi Arabia is actually going to use as much energy to power its air conditioning in a decade as it exports in oil today. And we're right. back here talking up and raising our hands on a debate stage when it says, okay, we want Medicare for all, who does? And no, that's not the right question, is how are you gonna get there when this nation was unable in the last, do anything in the last two or three years of our very fine president in 20, President Obama, but executive orders. If we don't have somebody, like they did in my two to one Republican district, they can trust, we aren't gonna make it. I honestly believe that. There's mighty fine candidates out there, but our Hobson's choice is to heal our country's soul with a president that can actually make that happen. I expect to be yelled at, I expect all that. Just like I was my two hundred population. Yeah. At the end of the day, I expect to earn their respect because ultimately it's about them and they're going to know it. It's why I'm walking across New Hampshire. Awesome. That's why. Well, Admiral, this was a pleasure. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you. Cheers. So there you have it, Thank folks. Admiral Joe Sestak, he's running for president. He's walking across New Hampshire.
This is another great episode of Politics and Pints on Jackman Radio, filmed right here in Peterborough, New Hampshire at Post and Dean Brewing. If you want to support us, please click subscribe, like us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, we're on Instagram too, and also we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash jackmanradio. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Thank you.